Lamentations 3 from verse 19. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent, because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. To crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the justice due a man before the face of the Most High, or subvert a man in his cause, the Lord does not approve. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. Let's pray once more. God of mercy, God of grace, teach us your heart this day, we pray. Bring us to you in humility and with confidence in your compassions, because they do not fail. Grant your mercy to us, O Lord, even in hearing, that we may understand you and your ways to the praise and glory of your name and the blessing of our undying souls. For we ask it through our Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. One of the most pressing, the most urgent, the most often repeated questions that you and I ask and that many ask is why? Sometimes just why? Why this? Perhaps more particularly, why me? Why is this so painful? Why does it happen so often? Why does it last so long? Why does it have to be so hard? There is some legitimacy in asking such a question, but there's also a great danger. We read it in verse 39. Why should a living man complain a man for the punishment of his sins? Sometimes behind the question why 
is the suggestion or the implication that I don't deserve this, that I deserve better, that rather than some kind of suffering, I deserve blessing. Or perhaps I don't really need to go through this. There's no value in this for me. And the book of Lamentations is written by a people who are under the chastisements of God, the judgments of their covenant Lord. And so when I use that language of judgment in the context of a covenant God, understand then that this is God dealing with his beloved people. And they are asking why. Jeremiah, sometimes called the the weeping prophet, a Jeremiad is another word for a lamentation from the beginning of his ministry and perhaps especially toward the end as he looks to the, the coming judgment upon Jerusalem and then as he goes through that himself, he is grieving and mourning over the the trouble, the trial, the affliction, the grief that has come to the people of God. And so if we're going to ask why, we need to ask why in the right spirit, we need to ask why for the right reasons, and we need to find the answer to the why, not from merely our experience or our imaginations, but from the word of this God. We're told in verse 33 of Lamentations 3 that God does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. Yes, verse 32, he causes grief, but he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. So notice, first of all, that God does afflict and grieve the children of men. And I doubt there's a single person here who says, oh, no, he doesn't. God does afflict and grieve the children of men. Affliction here is the suffering that causes distress. It's something that makes us cry out because of trouble. Grief is that which brings sorrow to us. And both are presented here and throughout the whole of the Lamentations as real and painful, as substantial. Now, afflictions and griefs come to those who do not know God and who are in the world. That the psalm that we read earlier reminds us that there are real punishments that there are judicial strokes, that God as the judge of all the earth does sometimes bring down temporal punishments. That is, trials and afflictions in the here and now upon those who do not know him. Sometimes people who have no regard for God seem to have an easy life here and we are reminded that there is a judgment to come. But sometimes those who do not serve God now begin to feel some of those afflictions and those griefs in this world. And that makes some kind of sense. But the point that Jeremiah is making is that God afflicts and grieves the people who are in his kingdom. 
He does not afflict willingly, but he does afflict. Nor willingly grieve, but he does grieve the children of men. And that's the emphasis here in this text. In in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 31, for example, you have another sense of this uh, sons of men or children of men, perhaps referring particularly to those in whom God delights. That his delight was with the sons of men. And so it may not be a a universal reference. It may have to do with our, our creatureliness and our neediness. And that doesn't make it any easier, does it? You might understand God bringing some kinds of judgments upon his enemies. But God afflicts his people. God grieves the children of men. God afflicts the people whom he loves. He has grieved his children. Now, sometimes when we're talking perhaps amongst ourselves or to other people, what's our instinct at this point maybe to try and explain that away or maybe to try and excuse it we try and find a way to evade it to 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 somehow brush it under the carpet jeremiah doesn't do that jeremiah assumes that god is in control of everything verse 37 who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the lord has not commanded it remember that israel is under judgments that god has brought about through nebuchadnezzar and some of those other great ancient kings and jeremiah doesn't just admit but he insists that these things too have come about because the lord has commanded it Micah, when he talks about God's judgments upon the people, what does he tell them to do in chapter 6 and verse 9? Hear the rod. Judgments have a voice. Afflictions and griefs speak to those who have ears to hear. And the fact then that it is God who afflicts his beloved people that it is God who grieves the children of men, ought not, if we understand Jeremiah, to lead to confusion, but actually to consolation. My friends, when afflictions and griefs come, we are not in the hands of the wicked. When afflictions and griefs come, we are not in the hands of Satan. We have not been abandoned, left under the control of the malicious and the cruel, enemies of our bodies and of our souls. We're not just drifting on a sea of fate, caught up in one current or another and hoping that we won't get sucked down by the next whirlpool. We're not living in a dark, empty, purposeless world where we just happen to exist, where we're going to live a life that is miserable, brutish and short, and at some point it will end, and that will be it. It is God who afflicts and grieves the children of men. Now the problem so far is that that does not answer the question why. 
If anything, it makes it even more pressing, even more urgent, perhaps even more distressing. If we begin with this certainty that it is God who brings these things upon us as and when they come, then all the more we might be saying, Lord, why? Why your people? Why me? Why us? Why is this so painful? Why does it happen so often? Why does it last so long? Why does it have to be so hard? And Jeremiah reminds us that God does not afflict willingly, nor willingly grieve the children of men. Now that does not mean that God is out of control. It doesn't mean that God can't quite deal with some of these pressures and troubles, that he's trying to turn them out of one channel into another. No, there is deliberation here. There is purpose here. There is no uh, undermining here of the, the sovereignty of God. Jeremiah's point is this, that the afflictions that God brings, that God's griefs are not cruel or capricious. God is not like one of the gods of the ancient world who hurls his thunderbolts on a whim. God is not playing games with his creatures, still less with his beloved people. God does not afflict the languages from the heart, nor from the heart does he grieve the children of men. What is the prophet trying to tell you? That God takes no pleasure in dealing thus with his people. That God is not, as it were, smiling and rubbing his hands when he brings his afflictions and his griefs into the lives of his beloved people. No, his mercy, his delight rather, is in mercy and in blessing. And Jeremiah knows this. If you read in Jeremiah 32 and verse 41, this is God's language. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Brothers and sisters, that's God's disposition. That's what comes from God's heart. That's the very expression of his being, that covenant mercy, that great kindness, that everlasting faithfulness. He causes grief, yes, but he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for this affliction does not proceed from his heart, nor the grief that comes to the children of men. You know the way that Isaiah speaks in chapter 28, that judgment is God's unusual work. The sense seems to be that you have to force God to bring these judgments and chastisements upon people. And what happens when he does? Again, Hosea chapter 11 and verse 8. How my heart is stirred. How my heart is churned within me. How can I give you up? Boys and girls, you ever seen tears in dad and mum's eyes when they have to discipline you because of your sin? I wish I needed not, but in faithfulness I must. Can I put it this way? There are tears in our father's eyes 
when he brings afflictions and griefs upon us. For it does not come from the heart. God's afflictions are needful. They are not nasty. God's griefs are appropriate. They are not arbitrary, just flung out on a whim. They proceed from provocations. God deals with sin. God responds to disobedience. God is concerned for our holiness. God wants to do us good. And my friends, until we grasp the divine character, that he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men, then we may often and always be asking why, but in the wrong tone, out of bitterness, out of resentment, out of confusion, out of doubt, and out of distress. And when afflictions and griefs come upon us, we have to train our souls that if we ask why, we ask why in the right spirit, and we ask why knowing the character and the covenant care of our God. He will act according to the abundance of his faithful loving kindness. That is how he always deals. That is his heart towards those upon whom he has from eternity to eternity set his love. And so he does not afflict us willingly nor grieve the children of men. We're never going to understand until we understand this. In Isaiah 63 and verse 9, remember again how that prophet speaks when he's mentioned the loving kindnesses of of the Lord. In all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. The God who afflicts is with us in our afflictions because of his faithful compassions, his covenant mercies, which do not fail. And we still haven't answered the question, why? But we need to lay this foundation. Why this? Why for so long? Why so painful? Why so often? Why is it so hard? We need to remember, first of all, that it is God's grief that has come upon us, that the Lord has laid this affliction on his beloved people. And that only begins to make sense when we contemplate further that the Lord does not afflict willingly, nor willingly does he grieve the children of men, that at root the dealings of our covenant God with us are full of his mercies, his tender mercies, his faithful compassion. So why? Why does God deal this way with his beloved people? 
Why are there afflictions and griefs for us in this world? How do you explain that? How do you respond to that? Answer the first. Sometimes you can't. Now, I think in measure you can, but often in detail you cannot. There are times in our experience as God's people when, as it were, having wandered through the marshy forests beneath, we begin to climb up some sort of incline, and that in itself can be a a painful and a sweaty experience. But there comes a point at which we can stand and we turn and we look back. And if you're a believer, I trust that there have been occasions when you can look back and you see the points of distress and sorrow, the afflictions and the griefs that God brought upon you at certain points in your pilgrim path. And from that vantage point, you can say, Now, if the Lord had not dealt with me in that way, then do you see the danger into which I would have gone? You might have turned aside to that path and it would have taken you to destruction. You might have walked in that way and it would have led you to the pit. But God put affliction in the way. God gave you a grief that would stop you. It's lovely to be able to do that. But can you always? Aren't there times when you look back and the past is clouded? You do not know why God has done what he has done in detail. You cannot trace out every step of the way. It may be, my friends, that when we come at last to heaven, the highest of high points, we will be able to look back And we will be able to see the whole of the way spread before us and be able to make sense of things of which we cannot now make sense. Or it may be that when you come to glory, the clearest view you will have is of God in Christ. And you may still not grasp then or ever all the ways in which you were led. But you will see his divine compassions You will understand his love and his wisdom and his mercy. And that in itself will make sense of all that you have been through in order to bring you there. So my first answer is, you do not always know why. We rarely know it immediately. We do not always understand it in detail. We may never, in this life or even in the life which is to come, be able to trace out every step, understand and grasp all of the Lord's afflictions and interpret all of God's griefs. And faith rests there. Faith can rest where reason cannot penetrate And there will be times, my friends, especially in the short term, when only the character of our covenant God will answer your question, why? And it is the God who spoke to us in Hebrews chapter 13, who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
God is my helper, I will not be afraid, we respond. What can man do to me? And that may be where we rest. But there is a second answer. Because God in his mercy has given us some answers to the question, why? Now these are not all the answers. And they are not all the answers that apply in every case. But they are some of the reasons why the God who loves his people brings afflictions and griefs upon us. And we need to look back at what we've been through. We need to look around at some of the things through which we may be passing. And we need to understand as we look ahead. For if afflictions and griefs are not our companions at this point, they will be. And we need to appreciate why God acts in this way toward his beloved people. First of all, it is to show us our sin. Some of us would never have seen our transgressions. Some of us would still not understand the depravity of our hearts. Some of us would never have come to understand how much remaining sin there is to be dealt with in us were it not for the afflictions and the griefs that God has brought upon us. Sometimes even in our very reactions to those afflictions and our griefs. When the pressure is on, when the deeps of our souls are broken up, some of you may be sitting here and saying, I would not be a Christian today if God had not afflicted me in his mercy. If I'd been allowed to go on in my way, if I'd been allowed to live the easy life, if everything had gone as I had planned, if my scheme for, for my life and my pleasures and my career had been able to just sail along the tracks, I would still be traveling away from my God. My friends, Afflictions and griefs can be God's ways of uncovering the sins of our hearts, making us face things in our souls that otherwise we never would have faced, making us ask questions about our attitudes and our actions that otherwise we never would have asked. And then they are God's afflictions, God's griefs to us. The Lord also uses these things to teach us our weakness. How many of us have learned to stop trusting in ourselves? Never have that temptation? Never have that instinct? I'm in trouble again, don't worry, I'll get myself out of it. I've got the wit, I've got the wisdom, I've got the strength, I've got the resources. I can sort this out. Again, maybe it's in some spiritual sphere. Don't worry, I can save myself. I can tidy up my own life. I can make this right. Might be in a relationship with somebody. Maybe in our dealings with, with other people or with things in the world. We're trying to make progress. The challenges that we face as a church... And our instinct, because we are often still so foolish, is to say, I can do this myself. And what does mercy look like? Mercy sends another affliction. 
Mercy and compassion bestow another grief until we get to the point where we say, I cannot do this myself. My friends, were it not for the afflictions that the Lord bestows, some of us would never have reached the point where we say, I need help. God sends these afflictions and these griefs to demonstrate our need. To show us just how desperately we require salvation. Brokenness in mind, brokenness in body, brokenness in spirit, brokenness in this life, drained bank accounts, injuries and illnesses, broken friendships and relationships to stop us seeking what can never be found here. Revealing the world is empty. So often and again I come back to the the reality of our salvation. We're not some of us like rats swimming from one sinking ship to another. What's the the temptation? Some of you know the, the story of the Philistine idol, Dagon. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant into Dagon's temple. And in the morning, Dagon was found flat on his face before the Ark of God, the symbol of God's presence. What did the Philistines do? They didn't say, oh, God must be the living and true God. They pulled their idol back upright and put him on his feet again and hoped it wouldn't happen once more. What do you and I do when our idols topple? We put them back on their feet. We chain them down so they stand a little bit more securely and no one can take them away. We prop them up in the hope that when the next challenge comes, they will not fall. The next day, Dagon was found, not just on his face before the ark, but with his head and his hands broken off. The afflictions of God will break the head and the hands off our idols, lest we should keep setting them up, propping them up, tying them down in the hopes that they will sustain us. My friends, some of us would still be trusting in our idols, still be resting on our own strength, still be thinking that we could manage, still be hoping that we can turn the church around, still be imagining that we can save sinners, that we can, in our own strength, sort out our lives. If it were not for the afflictions and the griefs, that our God bestows upon us. Afflictions and griefs bring us to Christ. How many sorrows of soul did some of us pass through before we cried out, God have mercy upon me. Think of the Philippian jailer. Some of us were Lydia's. Praise God for his compassions toward us in that respect. The Lord opened her heart gently that she might receive the things that were spoken by the Apostle Paul. But some of us are like the Philippian jailer. And it wasn't until the earthquake came. And it wasn't until everything felt like it was falling down around our ears. And even then the compassion Do yourself no harm. We are all here. What must I do to be saved? 
Some of us, because of our sinful stubbornness and our stubborn sinfulness, will never ask that question or would never have asked that question until the earthquake had shaken everything around us. Now, I wouldn't wish that earthquake upon any person here unless that's what it takes to make you ask, what must I do to be saved? There's compassion. The compassion that brings afflictions, the compassion that brings griefs, that brings a sinner to the point of asking, how may I obtain this Jesus? Have you reached that point? It may be a light stroke that falls upon you. It may be a passing grief. It may be the merest touch of God's rod. Or it may be that we need the heavy strokes that we might cry out to God for mercy. And then the afflictions and the griefs of God chasten us for our sin. This again is the language of Hebrews chapter 12. If God didn't do this, you wouldn't be his child. Now how much has the wretched thinking of this world crept into our minds and hearts that our instinct is that a father who disciplines his child cannot love him. Not beats him to a pulp. Not hurls abuse at him. Not dangles him from the wrist in the supermarket and slaps him about because he's angry with what he's done. But the chastening of the Lord, that's not discipline. My friends... A father who loves disciplines his child when the child goes out of the way. A father who loves brings the rod righteously, appropriately, with the right amount of force in order to correct us in the ways that we should not go. Where would you have gone if it weren't for the afflictions of the Lord? Where might you now be if some grief had not brought you up short? Or how much further along are you? Because God in his compassion brought afflictions and griefs into your life. This is what keeps us near Christ. Again, to our shame we speak it. We get used to doing all right, don't we? We get accustomed to things working out. Life seems all right. We're, we're, we're rolling along. We're, we're drifting on the current. You know, there's, th things are good enough. We're close enough to God. We're happy enough. We don't need to put in any more effort. We don't need to strive any further. This will do. My friends, God loves to have his children close. And were it not for our afflictions and our griefs, we might be content to be at a distance from our Christ. Oh yes, we love him, we esteem him, we trust him, but we don't cling to him and we don't delight in him. Perhaps unless until affliction comes. Haven't you learned to pray in affliction? Hasn't grief taught you to cling to your saviour? Haven't you enjoyed 
particular demonstrations of the compassions of your loving God that you might never have known unless you'd gone to him in time of need. It is what makes us like Christ. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, said the psalmist, that I might learn your law. It's a teaching tool in the hands of God. And it calls forth speech. Not only does it teach us to pray, but it teaches us to praise. What is it that the, the stranger to grace asks a godly man in the midst of troubles and distresses? According to 1 Peter chapter 3. Where do you get your hope? What's the reason for the hope that is within you? When these afflictions and these griefs roll in, why is it that you do not curse God and die? Why is it that you do not roll over? Why is it that you don't just huddle in the corner and, and hope that somehow things will work out for the best? Why is it that still you trust, you pray, and you look expectantly? My friends, if it weren't for our afflictions and griefs, some of us would not have the bright testimony that we do of the God in whom we trust and the mercies that he is pleased to bestow. Afflictions and griefs are the means so often whereby God displays his love towards those who would not know it or would not have it by any other means. Now please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we are like old covenant Israel under the judgments of God. What I am saying is that their God is our God. And that Jeremiah's confidence concerning the covenant compassions of the Lord needs to be our confidence too. Some of us might say, I don't know much of this. Some of us might say, I know more of this than I might wish. Some of us may be looking back on afflictions and griefs. Some of us may be in the midst of afflictions and griefs. Some of us may be looking ahead, even fearfully, to afflictions and griefs that may come. And that if we are faithful in Christ Jesus, will come. But let us not wander. And let us not stray. And let us not challenge and debate our God. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. These afflictions, these griefs, we should not assume, we should not assess, we should not trace up as if God has a heart of anger toward us, as if God is disposed against us. Because affliction, says Jeremiah, is not God's last word. To his people, it is always mercy. When the gold has been refined, God will, in his grace, remove the flame. The aims of these things are not to bring us finally to grief. 
but at last to bring us to glory. You must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of heaven. So let us respond to God's afflictions and griefs as they come and when they come with humility. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. My father, my father is in control and I lay myself in the dust before him. Penitence, verse 40. Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Again, please understand me. I am not saying that afflictions and griefs always come as some kind of punishment for the sin that you have committed. But they are one of the things that God uses to deal with our continued sins as his children. So let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. There needs to be patience. It is good, verse 26, that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Tears endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We need to trust him. Verse 31, the Lord will not cast off forever. We need to hope in him. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. Remember who walks with you. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. Who responded in the perfect way to the griefs and sorrows which he endured? My friends, there is a Christ-like response to God's griefs, to the Lord's afflictions. He is with us in them. His compassions do not fail. He will lead us through these griefs. He will use these griefs to bring us at last to glory, made like him. And then, even if you cannot look back, and see all that he intended. You will at least be able to look up. And know. That he meant it. For our good. Amen.